Calgary, I, I came here because I wanted to ski. There's no out. Well, we're here because the world needs us. I really like to argue. Um, I'm also really stubborn. It's completely crazy. It's bananas. So I felt like I had this PhD and a tremendous amount of work experience and no no qualifications. Intellectual property, you're arguing that you're different than everybody else. And in regulatory, you're arguing that you're the same as everyone else. Welcome to Between Meetings, a series of on-the-go interviews where we explore the world of innovation, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Marian Danko. Season 5 is recorded in Calgary, and in today's episode, I'll be speaking with Sabina Bruman, CEO at Nimble Science. Sabina has 20 years of medical technology commercialization experience in developing and managing mature IP strategies, obtaining regulatory clearances for novel products, establishing workable quality systems, innovating and managing successful R&D programs, including clinical trials, setting up small-scale regulated manufacturing, and raising funds. Thank you so much, Sabina, for joining. Welcome aboard Between Meetings. Thank I look you. forward to have a great conversation today. This is super cool. I'm looking forward to it, too. The other day, I was reading the uh, study from the US, and I assume that Canada might be very similar to that. So the study suggests that from 1997 to 2017, the number of PhD um, startup founders in STEM decreased more than by almost 40%. And there are multiple reasons for that. So one of them is that nowadays to run cutting-edge startup actually takes um, more uh, knowledge expertise. And that's why it's getting a little bit harder to do that. So another reason is that uh, lots of young PhD founders, they actually make less money. So it's getting not actually appealing um, option for them to run a startup. And another reason is that they delay entrepreneurship for work experience. Do you second that? And can you share your story from obtaining PhD to running a startup? There's a lot, there's a, there's a lot to unpack in there. <laughs> I have so many thoughts. Okay, one of them is any, any startup founder that's thinking about their salary is not a startup founder. So that, that automatically just, it's not about how much you make. It's, it's a binary zero to one. So if that's important, then that automatically weeds, weeds out anybody. And you know, PhDs are, are really, a, there's a lot of different people that go into, into PhDs, but it, it doesn't make a great uh, startup founder because your PhD is drilling down into something to such minutia you know, you've achieved near perfection in terms of the knowledge. There's no question. Uh, and that is the complete opposite of what you need to be a startup founder. I think the PhD skills help you a lot as a founder, you know, learning how to critically analyze, moving forward with a plan, changing your plan on the go, you know, being scrappy, making a lot happen with a little. All those skills are very transferable to an entrepreneurship, but that fundamental quality of a, of a PhD wanting to achieve perfection is, uh, is not great for a startup founder. So for some people, I think the PhD teaches them that they're not that person. And then it creates a great startup founder because <laughs> you realize I'm not the person to drill down. Uh, that's not who I am. And so then you get driven to almost the opposite, which is entrepreneurship. So um, those are my thoughts on terms of why, why PhDs you know, turn into founders or not. I don't know, trends are so hard, like 
the side hustle didn't exist before, right? Now you can make money. You can be an entrepreneur, but not be registered anywhere as an entrepreneur because you've got some sort of side hustle that's making you cash. And so I, I don't know that, that there's a lot to read in terms of like a changing trend. I think entrepreneurship has gotten a lot harder for sure in terms of uh, the expectations of, of investors for you to be, you know, functioning as, as, as you know, the, the corporate expectations of today, right? Even, even just the way you do your accounting, your QuickBooks, and the fact that you can print your financial statements and you've got all this in it. Like the bar is quite high because of all of the evolution there, but, um, but yeah, I don't know about trends. In terms of my own, did you ask me about my own journey? Yes. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, it was really one of happenstance. And uh, I, I used to think that I was just kind of hopping from one thing to another. But then I realized that uh, now I'm pretty firm. And my story is really one of, of good instinct, gut instinct for my own interests. And so, you know, I, I went into a PhD because I was, I was intensely interested in what I was doing. And it gave me a lot of freedom of thought, to, which is a lot of entrepreneurship stuff, right? You wanted to rule your, you want to run your own show. Uh, that's what a PhD is for a, a lot of it, right? So that was very in, in, interesting. The Calgary, I, I came here because I wanted to ski, and uh, doing a PhD was a way to feed that habit. That's the honest truth of why I'm in Calgary and why I did a PhD. It was a lifestyle choice for for doing something productive and cool, uh, but while being able to ski. And then, um, as you know, I, I, I went and worked for... Actually, first I went in and worked for a, a Bay Area um, venture fund that I, I literally ran into him in the hallway. We had a conversation and started a, a company that evening actually to do tech assessments. And so that taught me a lot about, about assessments. And then from there, I rolled into intellectual property at Innovate Calgary. Everything was kind of this, it felt like I was just kind of grabbing onto the next thing. But, but there was just a lot of instinct in there in terms of knowing what was a fit for me. Awesome. You have 20 years of medical technology commercialization experience in managing IP, building IP, developing IP strategies, and also obtaining regulatory uh, clearance for novel products. And uh, we know that actually it's the complexity of managing IP and regulatory uh, compliance um, plays a significant role in bringing innovations and technologies to the market. So fewer roadblocks makes everything easier. Based on your experience, have you witnessed uh, improvements over these years in this domain? And uh, what are the pressing issues right now uh, Canada face uh, compared to other countries? Yeah, so first, intellectual property and regulatory are fantastic skill sets to bring into entrepreneurship, right? Because it's your, it's just, it's your most expensive. <laughs> In your early days, it's a really expensive line item. And knowing how, it doesn't mean you, can, you can't do it without consultants, but knowing what you need to do and what consultants is a, is a really excellent thing to have on your team, whether it's the you know, whether it's the CEO or not, doesn't really matter, but someone on that founding team having deep comfort in IP and regulatory. Um, IP and regulatory are the most diametrically opposed thought processes you, you can ever have. They're very similar in that you're, you know, you're trying to argue something in both cases. And uh, I really like to argue. <laughs> I mean, for sport, like I just love, I love the process of arguing, which is why I love intellectual property and regulatory, because it's really, an, it's a structured argument. Uh, but in intellectual property, you're arguing. <laughs> intellectual property, you're arguing that you're different than everybody else. And in regulatory, you're arguing that you're the same as everyone else. 
it's completely crazy. It's bananas. So in one day, you're like literally typing something like, no one has ever done this before. This is super different. And then, in, and then you know, you switch and you're like, this is exactly the same as what everyone else has done before. You know, <laughs> don't, don't pay any attention to us. So the twos are connected and, and diametrically opposed. Is there change? Um, yeah, regulatory in particular and, and intellectual property. Intellectual property in more of a, a known way, but both of them are arts more than, than science. They evolve, they're like language, right? They evolve uh, with precedence, right? So this happened before, now we care about this. Regulatory changes based on new guidance documents or industry issues, you know, failures in the field and the, and the field evolves, right? There's always a sort of evolution. So it changes all the time, um, which is why you have to use consultants, even if you have deep expertise in regulatory, because you're never going to know the, and, and why you need to use lawyers, even though you can write good patents, uh, because that art is needed to, to be understood. Canada, hmm. I think it's doing a pretty good job of intellectual property in that it it's you know made some large investments. We have a, some exciting programs here with Elevate IP, and um, that's a, a, a federal initiative. I think you know, I think there's generally a good understanding among Canadian companies that you have to file intellectual property not in Canada but where your market is, right? And so I think that was something 15, 20 years ago. That wasn't the case. That was a hurdle that you always had to argue, but that seems to be gone. Um, we need more regulatory expertise for sure. Our regulatory expertise is so thin. Um, and try to find somebody that has regulatory expertise in in can like in Health Canada is exceptionally hard. So yeah, we need we need regulatory expertise for sure. Your previous entrepreneurial experience with Zephyr Sleep Technologies lasted for a decade, ten years. That's a long time. Yeah. What lessons have you learned? I learned a lot of lessons. I, I don't think there's a, like, honestly, there's, there's not an hour of the day that doesn't go by where I'm like, I've been in this situation before. I know how this plays out or I've seen this. And, uh, and that's, that's fantastic. That really helps. It's a little tough in terms of the team. You know, when at Zephyr, all of us were doing it for the first time and we all kind of learned together. Um, and that there was a lot of value in that. Now, sometimes it's a little difficult because my team is learning just like I did at Zephyr for the first time. But there's kind of someone always going like, well, you know how that turns out or this is going to happen. And, and so that's helpful, but it's also creates a little bit of a, you know, an N of one is not a good example, right? So just because you've seen things before does not mean that's the only way to do it or that's, and so it's a little bit, um, you have to be a little careful. But the lessons were, um, I mean, Zephyr, Zephyr was an entirely different ecosystem. We had no support. We were like an island uh, in terms of, you know, you could see some far off islands in Edmonton and a few in Calgary, but there was really no ecosystem to, to speak of to support that company. So the experience was very different um, compared to the support that we get we get now. But I think the, the biggest lesson for Zephyr was just speed. You got to go fast, fast. Like every, and you try to teach that to the team, like, an hour matters, like an hour, a day, it all matters, it all adds up, and that day turns into a month, turns into a year, um, so quickly. So that's the big that's the big lesson. Awesome. And now you're the second time founder. Before you actually jump on this journey, did you have any other thoughts that probably maybe I'll change the career path and consider other options? Uh, 
you know, I left Zephyr, uh, it was very difficult to leave Zephyr. So I left, I was a, I was a co-founder. I left at, at their peak. Uh, you know, things were going really well. I felt like it was, uh, I, you know, I was ready to start again in the, in the trenches. When I left Zephyr, I honestly felt like I was qualified for nothing. Interesting. It was the weirdest feeling because you have to understand there was no there was no ecosystem. People weren't just starting companies when I when I went in, right? It was like you know you knew a lot or you had you were experienced in some way and you were enough that you could go out there and start a company on your own. And when I left, I had crazy amounts of experience and understanding, but there's no job description anywhere that I could apply for that I was qualified for. So I felt like I had this PhD and a tremendous amount of work experience and no, no qualifications. Um, and then it was only when I was introduced to my co-founder and, you know, started thinking about jumping into a, a, a new company. And then it was really being introduced into the ecosystem, recognizing that, oh my God, I was surrounded by people that knew sometimes more, sometimes less than me. And that there was this support to create this company, that this was, that this was a thing that I realized that this was something we could, we could do. But yeah, it was a devastating feeling to feel like, wow, there's no, how could I not be qualified to do any job? Because um, as a startup founder, you're never, you know, you're not a regulatory person. You're not an intellectual property person. You're not a quality person. You're not an R&D person. You're not a product. You're just all of these things. And so I guess the lesson is once you start, there's really nothing. It's all you can do. That's it. You're in for life. It's like a, there's no out. <laughs> no way back there's no way back i guess you could become a consultant or something but tell me what's nimble science and what is the backstory the backstory what do you mean by the backstory what's the story behind the company why are we here yeah well we're here because the world needs us <laughs> that's a good one <laughs> because without us the future is bleak um I, i'm not entirely kidding i think uh, I mean, nimble, the, you know, the, the basics of it is my co-founder, Joseph, Joseph Wong, he, uh, he had the real guts to, you know, go down to his basement and make, make this thing when there was nothing, right? So he's the one that started it um, in, in truth. And he played or he, he was spurred on by his father, who was a GI doc, and, and, and encouraged him to solve this problem of access to the gastrointestinal tract, recognizing that there literally isn't. I mean, it's kind of, it's mind blowing if you think about it, right? We, we actually don't have access to a part of our body that may or may not control large parts of our life. And we can't, we're, we're just kind of guesswork. So he did it. And then uh, he's the one that took it through creative destruction labs. And through that process, he was paired up with, with me to, um, to help commercialize it. We wore all the hats for a while. Um, and then, you know, after a few years, we realized that the, the right sort of setup would be for me to be the CEO and for him to be the CTO. But we very much still, you know, jump all on who, who needs to get what done at, at any given time. Um, but Nimble is fulfilling a need for, it's as simple as access. It's like, it, like imagine, you know, you get sick and you go get a blood test, right? Uh, and then you have this expectation, well, okay, my blood is going to have some information. Whatever's going on in my body, my blood is going to kind of tell me something about that. And so there's this big sheet of all the things that your doctor can check off, right? You can check this level, check that level, see what's going on here and see what's going on there. And, and really the, 
microbiome within the gut has the same potential. It's, it, it's likely to be a hell of a lot noisier than, than, than a blood, just because of the dynamics of that, of that relationship. But, but we don't have access to it. So it would be like not having access to a blood test, which would be crazy impact to our health. Like imagine a time where your healthcare did not involve blood testing. And it was just kind of like, well, I think you've got something going on, right? And then what? Like check your symptoms, check your temperature. What's the next step, right? Go into surgery with no information? No, you go in with a blood test. So if you leap forward, what the vision, the, the future that Nimble envisions is it's the same thing, right? We're gonna, we're gonna enable that type of testing, but from an area of the body that, that does it that doesn't have access to it. And I think the way that we're doing that through partnerships um, and really recognizing that there's no way that we can, we can realize this opportunity alone, that we need to do this with the world, the experts of the world, and we need to do it in a way that solves their problems. Um, that, that, that part is the part that has me super jazzed. Um, I'm also really stubborn. So for me, the fact that this doesn't exist is just like, it kind of has to it's ridiculous you know you can't have a world where you can't have access to it so so you told me that you like skiing right and that's why you moved to Calgary but in terms of the access to capital in terms of access uh, to uh, talents uh, government support all the policies that we have growth opportunities why Calgary is the good place for uh, nimble science um well, Cal I mean, I'm, I'm, I've drank the Kool-Aid, I think, uh, or I'm helping make the Kool-Aid, whatever the analogy is. I, I think Calgary is a pretty amazing place right now to grow a tech company. I think there's appetite and there's, you know, you need that sort of momentum groundswell. I think we have that. Um, I think we have sort of a lot of um, companies around us that are that are very, you know, in, in more mature fields that we can, that we're not all sort of drinking the same Kool-Aid, right? You can look beside you and be like, you can see a Suncor and a Shell and you see these big giants kind of owning their space. And I think that's a nice kind of balance to what we've got going on. Um, so I think that the the energy in Calgary is, is fantastic. The talent pool is difficult. Um, hmm. That's one of the, the most difficult things with a, with a company that needs a lot of, you know, different specific expertise, but you know, COVID has created this situation where, you know, very few people need to be in the same room, right? You, we, we can think about a remote uh, access workplace where talent is no longer a barrier. Um, Nimble has several, uh, you know, some fantastic US-based investors uh, that really believe in what we're doing and that are, that are really supportive. And there's no, uh, you know, we need to, we need to be global. We need to have global reach. That's for sure. We can't be we we can't be thinking of ourselves as a Calgary-based company, but that has no implications for requiring us to move out of this location. So I don't. I haven't seen it as a barrier. I think it's a little different when I hear people talking about it in present day, and I hear people saying like, "Oh, you know, the investors are suggesting we move, or they're questioning our ability to do this or something. It seems to be more on the therapeutic side, like drug therapeutics, you know, where the path is long and the, the dollars are huge. You need massive access to capital. I don't know that space as, as well, if at all, but um, I think that's where it seems to be more present on the device space. I don't see it as a, as a problem. I mean, Canada is 
Canada is a very favorable place from a, a labor market, like in terms of you know, our salaries, the, the social support systems, non-dilutive funding, all of that is really an asset. Um, we're friendly with the, I feel like sometimes we negotiate between the European and the American, like the, we have a lot of European partners and I think they're very comfortable working with a Canadian company and a little bit, they've let their guard down a little bit more than they would if we were an American company, but they still feel like they're accessing that, that US side. So I think Canada has a lot to offer in that relationship of connecting the world. Um, yeah, it hasn't been, I see it as an opportunity for us. Uh, I mean, if it doesn't snow soon, then I'm going to reconsider. <laughs> <laughs> and to wrap it up this conversation, can you please share three pieces of advice for startup founders in life sciences? Only three. Uh, and before. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many things to say. Um, please. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, do it for the right reasons. It's not the money. It's not the exit. You have to be entirely focused on the exit because that's your job to deliver uh, but personally you can't be in it for the in it for the money you, you really have to be trying to create something right and uh, and if you're not it's the journey is going to be hard and rough I think make sure you're doing it for the right reasons and uh, you know give it time but race like hell you know every mm -hmm. minute counts but also recognize that the path is long and, and and that there's you know there's a work to do and then you know, I would say everything is strategy and planning, right? Everything is strategic. What you do when, how, when you file your intellectual property, when you, when you file your regulatory. You know, sometimes people think there's this playbook where you're just like, well, the first thing you do is you incorporate. And the second thing you do is you file a patent. And the third thing you do. And it's not like that at all, right? There's a lot of strategy in terms of how you manage your resources and how you tell your story and, um, and that's really, uh, you don't see enough of that in the early phase. People mm -hmm. just think they need to do their checklist, checklist, right? And, and a lot of the, a lot of the community encourages that, right? Have you done this? Have you done that? And you're like, no, I haven't because it doesn't make any sense. So. Thank you, Sabina, for sharing. Thank you for sharing your advice and your story. It's been a pleasure having you on podcast until next time. Thanks. <laughs>